Welcome to Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go Beyond the Numbers to find out. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, the business of government. We're excited to bring you a new monthly series that talks about issues in the public sector and higher education from a gamut of issues. And we are talking about a great one today. Uh, I'm your host today, Adam Jones. I'm the state government practice leader for Weaver. And we want to talk today about a cybersecurity issue that's constantly in the news. We want to talk about ransomware. I am very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Brian Thomas. Brian is Weaver's National Practice Leader for Advisory Services. Brian is also the founding partner of our IT Advisory Services practice and a leader in that field for a couple of decades, not to age you or anything, Brian. <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you were part of kind of a wave of, of IT consultants in our industry. Um, some of the first folks who really dove into the, the cybersecurity and IT security topic. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, my background with respect to cybersecurity comes really by necessity. Um, as we got into, I would say, sort of the post.com era and started getting into the early 2000s, cybersecurity issues started to become a lot more prevalent. And so those of us who were in the field of IT auditing and IT advising um, or advising clients on IT matters, uh, really by necessity had to start to learn about cybersecurity. We didn't call it that back then. We called it information security. Uh, but that term is broadened out because cybersecurity entails more than just information systems. It also gets into other aspects of security. Well, and we want to talk about a, a very specific topic today, and that is ransomware, which is a term thrown around in the news pretty regularly. We had a disruptive ransomware attack at Colonial Pipeline. Some, some of our listeners may have read about the attack at JBS Foods. And for someone who's not a, a cybersecurity professional, talk a little about what ransomware is and what's going on in our current environment, Brian. So ransomware is malware or malicious software that has been written by some threat actor, some bad guy, uh, who basically is going to install software on your machine that will then encrypt the contents of the machine. So what that means then is that you can't access your own data. So hence the term ransom, they're essentially demanding a ransom to give you the encryption keys to be able to decrypt your own data. So that in a nutshell is what ransomware is. What's happening today that's probably different than what people think of when they think about this issue that's been around actually for quite some time um, is that they're familiar with the scenario where, you know, they've been browsing on a website. Uh, the website maybe was a questionable website and their machine got infected through malware. That way they received a notification that their contents of their hard drive had been encrypted, received the ransom, uh, all of that. Um, so that certainly is, you know, still a threat vector that we deal with with respect to this particular issue. But when you're seeing these large scale ransomware issues that affected, you know, the two notable cases that you talked about, for example, um, you know, between the Colonial Pipeline and JBS Foods, these are 
different. What's different about this is, is that essentially the bad guys have infiltrated the organization using good old fashioned hacking techniques. And what they're doing is they're getting inside the organization, inside the systems, and they're getting as broad of access as they can possibly get within the organization. And then they're deploying their ransomware. So then what happens is, is that they're infecting as many machines as possible on the network, which creates this crippling effect for the organization that's going through that experience because now, you know, all of their machines are encrypted or, you know, a good majority of them are, including probably some of the systems that contain the company or the organization's crown jewels. Is, is this a matter of cyber defenses not being good enough for those organizations somehow bad at cybersecurity, or is it just really hard to stay a step ahead of, as you call them, the bad guys? The answer is all of the above. Um, so certainly many of the organizations that are affected by uh, ransomware could have done a better job with their own hygiene of security within their environment. So there, there's certainly that issue. Um, there is overall, you know, I would say a challenge with staying ahead of the bad guys. Um, the larger your network is and the larger the footprint of devices is that you have to secure within your environment, it's just difficult to stay ahead of, you know, all of the different methods by which somebody could get in and perform, you know, these unfortunate uh, activities. And so the, the answer really is kind of all of the above. Um, and that's why there's not really a silver bullet solution to fixing the problem. Well, today's uh, episode is called The Business of Government. That's part of our government series. And when you say a broad uh, footprint or a large, complex organization, government assets become targets too, right? They are, are certainly prone to this. And what are some of the concerns a government leader, a CIO, a security officer as that relates to government and ransomware. What's, what's particular about government that, that, you're, uh, that your folks worry about, Brian? Well, I'll answer that a few ways. I mean, certainly there are some unique issues with respect to this particular subject, ransomware and governmental entities. And a lot of that comes back to, as you indicated, Adam, governments have very large networks. So whether you're talking about a state or local government entity, um, a school district, higher education. These are all very large, complicated networks. And the other factor to consider with that is, is that governmental entities often have a lot of legacy software, legacy systems laying around that may be using outdated versions of Windows, for example, or outdated versions of software applications that are installed on those servers. And so that increases the risk because those systems are no longer receiving updates to protect them from these types of threats. Um, so that's, those are a couple of factors. Another one that I would consider that's, you know, fairly, I wouldn't say unique to government, but definitely I would say exacerbated in government is you have a challenge with being able to keep up with the Joneses in terms of hiring cybersecurity professionals to come in and help ward off these attacks. So, you know, if your, if your pay ranges, if your salaries are not able to be competitive with what's going on in the private sector, how are you able to get the talent in the door to be able to help you manage this particular threat? So I think that those are some of the unique factors for government to, to have to think through when it comes to trying to address this issue. Brian, one thing when I think about government data, I think of how valuable some of it is, whether that is individual student data at a institution of higher education or a health and human services agency or a large hospital. It seems like government data could be a very valuable target for ransomware folks. 
Yeah, Adam, you're right. So when you think about governmental entities and the types of data that they have, it's a lot of sensitive information, including a lot of information that would be considered personally identifiable information, which probably does make them a target for ransomware attacks. Um, you know, those entities would be highly incentivized to try to do whatever is necessary to recover that information if it was uh, encrypted through a ransomware attack. As you can imagine, it would also potentially bring, you know, that organization's operations to a halt as well if they can't access the records for citizens or, you know, if you think about the DMV, for example, and you're trying to get a new driver's license, can you get a new driver's license if, um, you know, they can't access your records? So all that is highly disruptive to the organization and, you know, again, does make them very ripe for ransomware attacks. Yeah, and getting a driver's license is hard enough, Brian. Brian, you're talking about how ransomware has become so prevalent, and it sounds like government needs to prepare for this as if you're going to have an attack, as if that's going to be inevitable. Um, knowing that you have to have a plan in place, what are the top things governments should be doing right now to protect themselves? That's a good point, Adam, and there are a few things that governments should be doing to protect themselves. First and foremost, I'd say that, you know, these organizations need to start to understand how these attacks are perpetrating themselves. So um, when you think of a ransomware attack, it typically starts with a phishing email. So we go back to this whole concept of phishing and, and um, getting people to click on links that they shouldn't click on and do things that they shouldn't do as far as providing user IDs and passwords um, because they think they're going to a legitimate website when they're not. Um, all those different techniques that are used from a phishing standpoint, that's usually how this initially starts. Um, so that can be the initial entree to get malware onto somebody's machine, or that can also be a way that they can get user ID and password for um, you know, being able to log into systems on behalf of that user. And again, that's pretty much the entry point for letting the bad guys into the network and starting to do what they can to more broadly penetrate the network to deploy their ransomware. So understanding, you know, those techniques and those methods does give organizations, you know, some ability to try to plan for that and try to figure out how to work around it. So some concepts there that need to be worked through are training of users to, you know, continue to be suspicious of emails that they're receiving and to not click on links. Don't enter your user ID and password at the request of an email. Um, those kinds of behavioral things that need to be continued to, to work on, to work on. Um, and then there's some other things too, just with respect to how users can get into the network and making sure that, uh, for example, remote desktop protocol, which is, um, you know, the protocol that Windows machines use to be able to log into them remotely. That's a very common threat vector for this particular type of attack. And so making sure that that's behind a firewall and that users can only get into that, you know, through a VPN and use of things like two-factor authentication, that's the not only having a password, but also having a code or something else that you have to use to log in. A lot of those things can really kind of squash this at the very beginning. Um, and so organizations need to look at that. Another common thing that you'll hear these days is this concept of immutable backups. That's a very common industry phrase right now. Uh, what an immutable backup is, is one that you cannot modify. And so the way in which that's accomplished normally is through use of a cloud storage provider. That cloud storage provider will, you know, take those backups. They will be uh, labeled as immutable, meaning that they're not to be tampered with. And the organization doesn't even have access to those backups without going through specific processes to try to uh, recover their own backups. And so doing that can keep the backups themselves from being encrypted through um, the ransomware process. And that at least gives you the, the leg to start, you know, the, the 
concept of do we really want to pay for the ransom or not. If your backups are compromised and your production systems are compromised, then you don't even have a starting point for that. So um, having the immutable backups is pretty important. And then we know what we tell people is, is that, yes, you do need to plan for this to actually happen because it's pretty commonplace. And so you need to review and then practice your incident response protocols. So a lot of people have an incident response plan. They have it on the shelf or, you know, on their shared drive someplace that's accessible when they need it, but they don't actually ever practice it. So through desktop exercises and other things like that, that you may hear about, those are definitely, um, you know, better practices that we recommend that our clients should consider to prepare for these things. And then another thing that they should be considering is investing in cyber insurance. So you may, as you may imagine, cyber liability policies have actually started to go up quite a bit because of these ransomware issues. Um, but it still probably is worth investing in because the cost to recover from a ransomware incident for a governmental entity, which is going to include, you know, large volumes of systems and records, can go into the millions of dollars. Brian, this word inevitable keeps coming up. If this is all inevitable, why not just save up enough money to pay for ransomware attacks when they occur? That's a really interesting way of looking at it, Adam. And, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say I've had some clients ask the same thing. Um, some considerations there that I think are worthwhile is, is that, you know, you're essentially paying criminals every time you do this. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it it's pretty obvious, I would say, that from a criminal behavior standpoint, that this is a business. And if you're a paying customer, that, you know, they're going to want your repeat business. And so, Something that um, was interesting was last month, there was uh, an interesting study that was published be, uh, by a company called um, Cyber Reason. And what their, what their study uh, found was that in cases where people had paid the ransom, in 80% of those cases, that organization got reinfected later on. So I think, you know, that whole concept of, you know, you're, you're a known payer now. Um, so whether you're going to get reinfected by the exact same organization or if, they're talking about you on the dark web uh, because you've been a known payer that, you know, it's very likely this is going to happen again. And again, this sample from their perspective, I think it was like 1,500 uh, organizations that they polled on this. So um, I don't know how statistically relevant it is, but certainly the concept of if you've paid previously, um, you may be seen to be likely to pay again in the future. So you may be creating a problem for yourself from that perspective. The other thing, though, too, is, is that um, it's also been found that a lot of times once they do restore access to your files and your data, that there is some level of corrupted data that's involved and other things that um, have happened within the systems, you know, through that entire process that still require some level of effort to recover and you still may have some loss of data. So being able to rely on them just releasing the keys to you because you've paid them the ransom uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get all the data back that you thought you were going to. Don't negotiate with terrorists. Right. <laughs> Don't negotiate with terrorists. And th those are just some of the things that come to mind when I think about, like, why, you know, you don't just treat this as a business issue and, and you know, decide to pay the ransom every single time. Yeah, I saw a piece the other day on the rising cost of cyber insurance. But but I want to go back to one of the first things you said, Brian. We sometimes get frustrated with our IT staff who pester us about how we treat email or um, uh, install new two-factor authentication or insist on stronger passwords. But I think we need to give those folks a break. I mean, an ounce of prevention really is a pound of cure here, right? 
I mean, it's always a trade-off trying to figure out, you know, the balance between convenience and security. Security often is inconvenient and can be disruptive to, you know, operations of the organization. So, you know, the cybersecurity guys and the IT professionals definitely need to work with the organization to be able to figure out what reasonable um, security protocols can be can be implemented. However, you know, I think that in this day and age, we do need to err on the side of security versus where I feel like, you know, probably industry-wise, we were probably erring more on the side of convenience, um, you know, up until much more recently. I, I think the job of the government CIO or security uh, leader has become a lot more complicated just in the last uh, decade, it seems to me, as, as more or less a layman. Uh, that said, what are the blind spots that make government agencies most vulnerable to attack? What should kind of the cutting edge, edge leaders in government be looking at with regard to cybersecurity? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things there. Um, blind spots, you know, for one, I mean, I think that most organizations that we go into when we're talking to them about who has what we call administrative access. So that's basically the keys to the kingdom. Um, there are generally way too many people in the organization that actually have that access. And, and so as a result of that, that is in and of itself a blind spot. It's very easy in 2021 for bad guys to go figure out who your likely system administrators are by just going to LinkedIn and doing a search for, you know, different positions within whatever organization they're targeting. And so once they start that process, then they can start using phishing campaigns or social engineering against those individuals to try to get them to do things like give them their credentials. If you can get an administrator to give you their credentials, you may have already won the game. All you have to do then is figure out a way to log into a machine on the network and then you're an administrator, which means you have very, very broad access in the systems. You talk about something like ransomware. Now they can install ransomware wherever they want to. So sometimes a review of your organizational chart is important when you're a CIO because the, the uh, access to your employees can get broader than you think or realize. Yeah, this comes back to a lot of times, again, the convenience versus the security component. What you'll hear from the system administrators is, is that they wear many hats. Um, we're understaffed. We have, you know, issues with uh, being able to segregate all of these functions out. So I need all this broad access so that I can pivot from thing to thing and do my job. That may well be true. However, um, we're opening up the risk then that if your user ID and password are compromised, that now we've opened up a wide hole into the environment. And so, again, this is that that, you know, tug of war between the side of convenience versus security, but certainly trying to understand that where you can, you need to limit the access that the individuals have to only the things they really need to get into. That in of itself will mitigate a lot of risk. Brian, I have I have one last question because I want to talk about 2020. I know nobody else does, but. As we exit the disruption of COVID, and we have made huge shifts in the workplace, uh, it won't ever be the same. But some folks are staying at home. Some folks are returning to work. We're seeing uh, offices make all kinds of accommodations, practicing hybrid work models. Now that sort of the office space has changed and will continue to evolve, are there cybersecurity 
threats we should consider when having a hybrid workforce, when utilizing multiple devices to access data to folks bringing their own device? We, we've really changed the nature of what the office is. How does that impact the nature of cybersecurity? Well, that's a good question. Um, it what. For, for one, what we've done is we've really extended our networks, if you think about it, to the homes of the individuals who are, um, you know, in a work from home type scenario or, you know, maybe in a hybrid environment. And so when that's the case, um, it's a little bit different than relying on the security that your IT professionals have put in place within the four walls of your building. Now we're concerned about, you know, potentially um, the security of the home network that the individual is on and what controls are on that particular device that the individual is using to connect into the network. And so what this does is puts pressure on, you know, the cybersecurity folks within the organization to be able to understand and and really think through what policies they can enforce on these devices to make sure that they're meeting a certain minimum threshold from a security standpoint. Um, if you do have a, the ability to connect in devices that are not even um, issued by the organization, but are individually owned uh, devices, then you certainly do have to have certain solutions in place to be able to manage that and make sure that you're not accepting undue risk by allowing insecure devices to connect to your network. The other thing that I think about and consider with this is, is that when we've extended the network out to individuals' homes and, and home offices, is that um, you really need to think through some of the policies as far as where people are storing data. Um, it certainly is convenient to store things locally on hard drives, for example, but now that hard drive is no longer within the office. And so, you know, not that somebody's necessarily going to, um, you know, break into your home and steal your computer just because it has that organization's data on it. But, you know, if somebody did break into your home and steal your computer, it does have the organization's data on it. And so then that becomes a question as far as, you know, whether that's acceptable risk or not. So really the whole work from home and hybrid work model, it's really just, in my opinion, it's just extended the risk to have to consider lots of additional things that, you know, maybe we did somewhat have to think about in the past because um, we, we certainly did have remote workers before 2020. But when everybody went remote in 2020, it certainly highlights all of those issues that you would otherwise, you know, probably not be thinking about. Brian, these issues don't tend to get simpler, do they? They do not because the ways in which we're using technology continue to you know, evolve. And so what I was concerned about as a professional 20 years ago and you know, the things that we were trying to focus on securing 20 years ago are very, very different than where we are now and how people are using their machines, what they're using them for, um, the different manners in which they consume information and how they interact with their organization, the whole, you know, all of the considerations with relation to uh, the cloud and cloud environments. All of that is quite different than, you know, what it has been. And so this will all continue to evolve. You know, we talked also uh, very briefly at the beginning that, you know, cybersecurity doesn't just cover information security systems uh, or information systems. It also covers the concept of operational technology. So as you start to think about all of the smart devices that an organization may use, um, could be printers, could be thermostats, could be, you know, sensors to record activity on a production floor. Um, all of these different things require security. And and they also, we because, you know, the, one of the benefits of having these devices is our ability to interact with them and be able to see, you know, what's happening real time without having to have somebody walk across a plant floor and read a meter or something like that. 
So we want to be able to connect these things. We want to be able to use them that way. But then that opens up the security risk. So to your point, it's a long answer to your quick question, but it, it all does get more complicated as this continues to evolve because we want to integrate and, and be able to um, interact with everything. Brian, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your expertise, your time, your candor. And it, it sounds like we could talk about this for another 30 minutes and get in and out of a number of details. So maybe we'll have to do it again. But for now, um, thank you for joining us. This has been Weaver Beyond the Numbers, the business of government. And we hope you guys have enjoyed our podcast and have a super day. I'm Adam Jones.